our passage this morning is Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. If you'd like to follow along in one of the Pew Bibles, that should be page 810. This is our second sermon looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Last week we looked at the Beatitudes, and now we look really at a passage that reflects back the purpose of the Beatitudes. So let's now attend together to God's Word. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we come to these words. In some ways, words very familiar. But we pray, Lord, that to the degree that they are familiar, we would not assume. Lord, even if we understand what they mean, that we would apply them. That we would deepen our desire to serve you as your word instructs and empowers us to be who you have made us to be. Thank you for your word. Thank you that Jesus teaches us even now. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So last week we looked at the Beatitudes. Uh, That kind of upside down wisdom, that uncommon sense of Jesus. He opens his sermon with a list of proclamations about the flourishing life. And the things he says are rather jarring. They're discordant if we just listen to them on their own. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are persecuted and suffer. Now, he could say that not because those are divine signs of favor in and of themselves, but because those are characteristics of a people that look to God for fulfillment. They point to the promises of God for comfort the promises of God to heal, the promises of God to restore and reconcile and make peace and give us a kingdom and make us his children. Such disciples, following Christ, are prepared then to experience his reward when he comes into his kingdom. On one hand, this is a comfort. It's a comfort for those who want more from life than what they're currently experiencing. Something better is coming. Jesus is offering us something better than the best of what we can experience right now. So it's a comfort. But I think we're right to ask, is that all that Christianity has to offer? Is that all that Jesus and his message is offering? That he has good news of comfort yet to come? Is Christianity just a waiting game? Because if it is, I think there's something to 
the critique and criticism of Christianity that says, well, Christianity is just the opioid of the masses. It's just something to dull their pain so that they can get through. It's just palliative care for the sick and suffering. I want to be honest and say Christianity has been misused this way. To just tell the people that are suffering, the people that are mourning, the people that want justice to just be quiet so that the powerful, so that the people in charge don't have to deal with things. But is that what Jesus is saying? Is that what Jesus' sermon is about? As we read the Beatitudes and as they flow into what Jesus says in verses 13 through 16, we see that Jesus' sermon is not about placation. It's not about pacification, but what Jesus is doing is offering purpose. It's not about quieting the cries of the poor. It's not about shushing the demands for justice or actions for peace. No, what he is doing is giving purpose to the poor. He's giving purpose to the meek. He's giving purpose to the persecuted for the sake of righteousness. When the world would say, what good are you? They are living the blessed and wise life because even though they are yet to be satisfied, yearning for personal and corporate righteousness, though they are waiting satisfaction as they mourn over evil, though they are using their resources and strength for others instead of self-assertion, what they are doing is saying that there is more to life than personal success and comfort. They are pointing to the purpose of the kingdom. The purpose of the kingdom is to testify to the king. You want to know if a store is being managed well? You don't just go and talk to the king or the manager. What do you do? You walk around the store. Is it clean? Are the employees happy? You go from one... I experienced this growing up. You could always tell when you passed from the county I grew up in, Carroll County to Baltimore County. Because as soon as you crossed the county line, the roads changed. Suddenly there were more potholes. And that's not to say Baltimore County is worse than Carroll County, where I grew up in, but you knew it was managed and their priorities were different. The way things are run in the kingdom say something about the king. And this morning we are going to reflect as Jesus tells his disciples, he says, this is the blessed life saying, this is how I want you to live as my disciples. And then he specifically turns to them and those of us that seek to follow him and says, you are salt and you are light. And what he's doing is telling his disciples, he's telling us that the purpose of us in his kingdom is to testify to the king. As followers of Christ, we as salt and light testify to the coming of the Messiah for the glory of God. Of the king. That's what being salt and light is about. Salt and light are paralleled here. It says, You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. They have the same structure. And so this reminds us that they are being used together. It's not just two distinct ideas, you're salt, and a completely different thought over here, you're light. No, they work together in parallel in many of the ways that the Psalms use two lines together that parallel, that reinforce as they work together. But these metaphors are distinct. And the purpose of the testimony is given to us at the end of the passage as he sums it up so that 
they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. That is our purpose. To testify to the glory of the Father. That is what being salt and light is all about. We're going to briefly look at how being salt and light shows that to us. So starting with salt, we can say that to a degree that being salt of the earth is about the substance of our testimony. Now let me be honest, salt has a lot of uses and has evoked a lot of teaching on which of those uses or which of those ideas are chiefly at work in this passage. You use salt as seasoning. That's not new. As one friend paraphrased something he read, salt glorifies everything it touches. That's why you have to watch your sodium intake after you've eaten at a nice restaurant because they put salt in everything. You use salt for seasoning. That hasn't changed. But much more so than today, salt was used for preserving. You needed to preserve foods from going bad, and so salt was used for preservation. It was used for purifying. They would rub uh, newborn infants in salt after they were born uh, because salt works against infection. In certain uses, it could be used as a fertilizer as well. But all of those things speak of salt's enduring quality, its usefulness, and therefore its value. So what is the significance of being the salt of the earth? Do we just choose the image that we like? Well, let me illustrate it this way. What if I was to say, you are the cake of the earth? What do you think of when you think of cake? Well, it's a dessert, right? It's not the main substance of the meal. It's something additional. It's something extra. It's full of sugar. It's sweet. Traditionally, we don't eat dessert all the time because historically we haven't had extra money for sugar to then make these extra things. So it's dessert. What type of cake? If I say cake, you might think of a flavor, but there are also a specific type of cake. You think of birthday cakes. You think of wedding cakes. So cakes are about dessert. They're about sweetness. Sometimes they point to the elite. There's a reason that phrase sticks out that Marie Antoinette is supposed to have said, whether she said it or not, let them eat cake. It was a sign of her disdain for the plight of the masses. So it's a sign of wealth. It's a sign of sweetness. It's an extra. It's an add-on. And for all of those reasons, you serve cake at a celebration. The properties of salt, its importance, its enduring nature, the way it preserves and seasons and makes things better, appear in the Old Testament primarily in two ways. We do see it sometimes used to actually preserve food. We see it talked about with seasoning. We see it being sent into the fields after warfare so that the extent of salt would prevent it from growing and producing we see those uses, but the primary appearances of salt in the Old Testament, which Matthew would be drawing on for this audience, which Jesus is drawing on as he preaches to Jews, is in the context of sacrifice and covenant. All of the sacrifices in the Old Testament were to be presented with salt. All of the grain offerings were to have salt with them. The presentation of the meat offerings 
the animals sacrificed were to have salt within them. And such was the importance of this and the value of salt that over time when two important figures would make a contract, when they would make a covenant, they would include salt among the ceremonial aspects of that covenant. To the degree that when God speaks of his covenants, he talks about making covenants of salt. When he promises the priests that he would provide for them, as he says, you can depend on me to provide for you this enduring promise, in Numbers 18.19, he calls it a covenant of salt. In Second Chronicles 13.5, when God speaks of his promise that there would always be a son of David on the throne, he refers to it as a covenant of salt. In the Old Testament context, salt bespeaks the covenant holiness of those who have received God's lasting covenant promises. Those who follow Jesus, you and me, we are salt because we are to testify to the enduring and distinct worth of being the covenant people of God. God has made a covenant of salt with his people and we are salted with the presence of Jesus so that we can be acceptable sacrifices, pleasing to God, holy and set apart. The disciples of Christ are a testimony that God's covenant promises are true and they are shown true if they are following Jesus because Jesus is the fulfillment consistent with God's promises. So the salt bespeaks the substance of our testimony. Then he says, you are the light of the world. If we are to testify to the king, salt can be said to be the content of our testimony, and light speaks the reach. We are to be a light to the world. Some of the Old Testament language that Jesus is drawing on is translated light of the nations. The scope of our testimony is not to be limited. We're not supposed to put it under a basket. That contradicts the purpose of light to illuminate, to illumine, to shine. No, instead, we have been commissioned to a life lived in a manner distinct from the world, a light in darkness, so that the surpassing worth of Christ so that the surpassing worth of his kingdom might be displayed far and wide. Where there is ignorance, where there is evil, where there is oppression in the darkness, we are light to pierce and illumine and display a better way. When we mourn over evil, when we make peace, when we are meek, when we suffer for righteousness' sake, we are light in the midst of darkness. The enduring testimony of God's covenant faithfulness and the display of light are come together in Isaiah 59. Just a picture so you know that I'm not making these things up. Isaiah 59, speaking of light, I'm going to read verses 21 into chapter 60, verse 2. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. 
My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. God makes covenant declaration to his people. And in keeping his promise, he sheds his light on us. So that we can be a light to the nations in darkness. We are a people of promise to show the surpassing worth of the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus who has come. The call to wisdom that is not of this world, to seek the Lord's blessing instead of the world's, is not to make us quiet in the face of suffering, but to give us purpose in the midst of our struggle to testify to the glory of the Father. How do we do that? Our testimony comes through our good works. We are to let our light shine before all men that they might glorify our Heavenly Father. We are to reflect the substance of the covenant by seeking to be a holy people obedient to God and to then display that through our good works. Now, first of all, we need to to speak to the matter of the good works are shorthand for obedience of doing what God has made us to do. This includes doing what God has explicitly said that we are to do and not doing what he has told us not to. This is what shows the surpassing glory of God because we choose God over the offerings of sin. We choose God over self-indulgence. We choose the wisdom of God and a fear of the Lord instead of the wisdom of the world that says, take what is yours by strength. That is, be strong. That is, be always happy. That is, be not suffering, but being victorious. Meekness. Getting our own way. Instead of, instead of getting our own way, we are to be meek. Some of us are willing to settle for injustice if we aren't too badly impacted personally. Instead of Jesus' wisdom to be peacemakers, we often use our power or our victimhood as leverage to get what we want and thus win. Often we settle for the appearance of looking good instead of doing what we do from a purity of heart. Disobedience flows from putting ourselves first over God. It's idolatry. It's worshiping ourselves or what can serve us over God. Disobedience does the opposite of showing the substance and beauty and illumination of the goodness of God shown us in Christ. Verse 16 says this. It says that we are to, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Is what we are called to do to shine light on our good works. No. Jesus elsewhere tells us that when we give to those in need, we're not to let our right hand know what our left hand is doing. 
So is our fulfillment of being salt and light to go out and say, see how righteous we are. See the good deeds. See how Christians care for the poor. See our political activism. No. Whether or not the world sees it, if we are doing what Jesus commands us to do, we will be light in the midst of darkness and it will shine. Light shines in darkness no matter whether the darkness receives it or not. And it also means that we don't just seek to do good where that good or that right is appreciated. We are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We don't just obey among those who agree with us. We don't just do it for the encouragement of like-minded people. We don't just shine the light in the household. We don't just say, well, look how good Jesus is, brother and sister, who already acknowledges that Jesus is good. We don't just keep it to ourselves. We're supposed to fill the whole place, the whole world, with the glory of God. And so that means that we often obey, that we often do good works by obeying God in circumstances where people don't see the value, they don't appreciate the wisdom of obeying God. Let's be honest that most of us want to glorify God, and most of us want to testify to his greatness, but not through meekness, not through mercy, not through persecution. Many of us want to testify to God's greatness by saying, look how wealthy he has made me, or look how healthy, or look how well I get along with my children, look how successful God has made me. And it's true that we can glorify God when he blesses us in those ways, but our desires to only glorify God in those circumstances twist our purpose. In fact, the glory of God is demonstrated in good works, in the character of the Beatitudes, often much more when we are obeying in circumstances that make obedience difficult. When we are seeking to be light in a dark place. Last summer, Rebecca and I needed to repaint the outside of our house. We have a wood house. And we were talking to uh, the person that would paint it about the best quality paint. I couldn't remember the paint, but I did remember the commercial for paint that I had seen years before we were trying to make this decision. And in this commercial for external paint to put on the side of your house, they were trying to show how durable, how strong, how long-lasting their paint was. So where do you think the picture of the painted house was from? Was it from sunny Southern California, where it's always 70 degrees and mild? No. It was a main coastal house. Sunny and then cold. Salt water blowing against it, gale force winds, ice and snow. See, the durability, the quality of that exterior paint is demonstrated. It may just be as durable if you live in the mildest climate. But how are we going to know if it's not tested? How are people going to see their surpassing worth of doing what God wants, not just when circumstances are good or easy for us? No, God calls us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world by demonstrating his surpassing worth by doing what he says is right, whether or not it's easy, whether or not it's appreciated. 
The truth is, we don't know whether the world will receive our distinct form of wisdom and way of life. But we not, don't do it based on whether or not they will accept it, but whether or not it will glorify God. And so we do it knowing that if we are distinct, that people will see it, whether or not they receive it. One of the ways that this is maybe best illustrated in the life of the church historically is in our call to honor the Lord's day as holy. Sabbath practices throughout church history, where we have said of six day of the seven days, six are for work, and another day, one day is set apart for worship and for rest. Now we can have conversations about the particular ways we as Christians in light of the gospel of Jesus might fulfill that. But throughout history, God's people have said, this day is different. And so, while neighbors may be going to work in the fields, Christians were saying, we're going to rest. While they are frenzied with activities, they are saying, we're going to join with our church family. Now, were Christians by doing that saying, hey, you, look how good my deeds are. I'm going to come feed you who are poor. I'm going to come do political activism. No, really, what we were doing was obeying by withdrawing from the world's ways. But because of that, we typically have a five-day work week. We have a weekend. People look to the weekends have rest. Something distinct about us is shown just by obeying God and saying, what you have said is better, we will do by resting from our work and worshiping Jesus. St. Francis is, of Assisi is supposed to have said, preach the gospel always, use words if necessary. And often, we think about that, well, if we do good deeds, people will see that and they'll see the love of Jesus. But I do want us to consider the fact that our thoughts and our priorities and our words and our actions, they are always speaking. People are always watching. What are we saying about the glory of God? This week, a, a survey of not just Christians, but all kind of religious spectrums in the United States came out. And the question was, what is more important, your religion or being an American? It didn't say, is being American or being religious important? Those are distinct questions, and I think we can say, yes, both things can be important. But it said, what is more important? And among those who were Christians, I averaged the results only 12.5% said being a Christian, their religion is more important than being an American. Over 58% said that they're equally valuable. And more than a quarter said that being an American is more important than their Christianity. Now surveys can always have their flaws. And I'm not saying this survey is without its flaws. But there is a substantial weight of evidence in that survey and ones like it that say that what we will explicitly say, let alone what we do, let alone anything else, what we will say is that God and serving him according to what Jesus has said is of equal or lesser value than our national identity. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the king. Is the light to the nations that we are shining is, America is great? Or is the light that we are shining saying, America is great, but Jesus is greater? 
The Constitution is good, but the gospel is best. So I have to ask, as those who have disobeyed, as those who have not sufficient good works, as those who have done many bad and disobedient things, have we lost our saltiness? He says, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. My light has flickered a bunch this week. How about yours? Are we just to be trampled underfoot? The last thing that we see in considering that we are salt and light is that the truthfulness of our testimony is not in the sufficiency of our good works, but that the king makes our testimony true. It's a challenging thing to read these words, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And it's true that many people used a form of rock salt in those days that wasn't completely or even close to completely pure. And so you could have what appeared to be salt, but to have all the salt have been washed out of it through water or other circumstances. And then, truly, what good was it to get rid of it? But there's also a play on words here. The actual language is not it's lost its saltiness, it's lost its taste. The salt has become tasteless. And another use of that word, a common use of that word, is it's become foolish. We can understand that language. A foolish person is a tasteless person. Tasteless people do foolish things. What makes us tasteful? What is our wisdom? Jesus has just shown us what wisdom looks like, the opposite of foolishness. The foolishness of the world, according to their standards, is the wisdom of those that follow God, those that are meek, those that mourn, those that are poor in spirit. What makes us foolish is conforming to the world. What makes us salt is clinging to Christ. Our obedience testifies to the king. Our obedience glorifies our Father in heaven. But take heart. The purpose is not to say, look how perfect our obedience is. Be like us. No, the point of our obedience is that we are clinging to Jesus as of surpassing value to what the world offers. Jesus is better than what the world offers. Obedience serves our purpose as salt and light, but it is not the sum of it, because it is not the perfection of our obedience that shows the worth of God, but the devotion to God expressed in obedience. Our hope is not that the world sees us, but that they see us holding on to Jesus. I'm going to read Isaiah 42. I'm going to read verses 5 through 7. The words that come before this, I quoted last week, speaking to Jesus, who upholds justice, who comes meekly and mildly. And then it goes on to say, Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives bread to the people on it and the spirit, those who walk in it. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. 
I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. The promise of Isaiah 42 is that he is giving one who will uphold the righteousness of the covenant, who will be given to the covenant people, who will sustain for them the shedding of light upon the nations that they cannot accomplish. This is what 2 Corinthians 4, 5-7 through 7 says as Paul and his fellow apostles and disciples talk about what their purpose is. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay so that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. Brothers and sisters, your ability to be salt and light doesn't come from your own strength. It comes from Christ at work within you. Being salt and light is not new to Jesus' disciples. It's been God's intent from the very beginning. Adam and Eve were to be salt and light. God formed them from the earth to show their surpassing worth as they were to image God, and not just image God by being static, but they were to go into all the world, filling it with the glory of God as they multiplied and had dominion. Abraham was called to be salt and light, called with distinction away from his people who didn't worship God to be distinct and to receive a covenant in relationship with God. And what was he supposed to do? He was supposed to receive God's blessing in order to be a blessing that in him all the nations of the world would be blessed. Israel, who received God's covenant promises, was to be holy and distinct among all the nations so that the nations would want to come and see what makes you special. But we've all fallen short. So we cling to Jesus, who is able to make the tasteless salty, who is able to make the dim bright. Jesus, who took on flesh and walked on this earth, salting it with his sweat and tears. He is the salt, his perfect obedience, making him an acceptable sacrifice to the covenant God. And then he was lifted up on a cross on a hill, on display, not just to the Jews, but to the Romans and all of the nations that had gathered in Jerusalem for Passover, the one who suffered truly for righteousness, that all might see in him the glory of God, and trusting in him and his ways experience his reward. We are salt and light because we have Jesus. So let's cling to him. And seek to do nothing that would hinder our work. Our work of showing Jesus to the world. Because in Jesus we see the glory of the Father. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you are with us by your Spirit. Strengthen us for the work you have given us. Because we are in Christ, we are salt and light. Help us to be in Christ. To display the surpassing glory of knowing him. 
give us strength to do the works of obedience, to live by the wisdom of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.